Good evening, everyone. My name's Nigel Parfit. I'm one of the lay readers here at uh, Trinity. Let's pray before we look at God's word together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this account of Mary at the tomb and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. We thank you that we can come and praise your name. And we pray now that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes to your words and change our lives. Amen. Well, uh, all human life involves times of joy, doesn't it? And happiness. I trust that you've had a joyful Easter Sunday. But also, of course, there are times of grief, fear and despair in varying amounts. These form part of the great story of the human life, don't they? They're great drama of life. And, of course, this often forms the basis for great novels, films, and stories. It's what makes life, human life, so intriguing. And I'm sure that for all of us here tonight, we will have experienced this in various amounts, various amounts of joy, grief, and uh, despair. Perhaps it helps to explain why, as we get older, some of us tend to get a bit grumpier, because we experience more of grief. I don't know. Well, we've had, haven't we, Holy Week, and perhaps this was what it was like for the disciples here on earth, because the passage we've got in front of us tonight is just one very small part of this much bigger story that takes place in this latter part of the Gospels. And I would like to suggest for you that uh, the, uh, the disciples may well have experienced grief, fear, and later, in the latter parts, joy, which we'll come to more in a bit later. But I thought it would be good that we started to be having an overview of what had actually taken place in this last week. So if I could have my first slide, please. So we are celebrating that Jesus is risen, and it's a time of despair leading on to joy. If you remember last Sunday we were here, and we were celebrating the uh, day one, the coming of Jesus in triumph into Jerusalem. Day two for the disciples was uh, the Monday where Jesus went into the temple and he had some confrontations with the authorities. Day three, on the uh, Tuesday, he went into Jerusalem and he went to the Mount of Olives where he taught the disciples and told them what they were to be expecting, that he would be dying and rising again. Day four was very quiet. It was a Wednesday and nothing much happened on that day. But uh, day five, on the Thursday, we get into the really serious stuff. Uh, We get into the preparation for the Passover. Jesus instigated what we call the Last Supper. And then we had the dreadful account of one of his followers betraying him and the arrest of Jesus. It must have been a time of despair. And then, of course, we got to Good Friday, even more despair, because there was the false trial 
and there was the uh, crucifixion, the death of Jesus. Things got incredibly dark and very violent. And then there was the hurried burial into the tomb because they couldn't do anything on the next day because that was the holy day, the Sabbath. So on day seven, Jesus was in the tomb. And then we get right up to date with this story. Uh, We're on day eight now, where the resurrection Sunday, the first day of the week. And what did the disciples do? Well, at this point, at the end of of that uh, fifth day, they retreated back behind closed doors because they were frightened of the authorities. All their hopes and desires for the future had been destroyed by the killing of their master and Messiah. It must have been a really bleak time for them. So that's the background to the passage tonight in chapter 20. Now, I'm going to take a liberty here because I'm going to include all of these first uh, ten verses before our reading as well. So, what do we see there? Well, we see that the, the, the account starts on the first day of the week, after the Sabbath. It was the day on which the Jewish people can are free to do what they like. They can get on with their normal lives again. But we read here it was a woman, Mary, who responds first. She, le- she leaves the house early in the morning while it's still dark to take spices to complete the task of preparing the dead body for the burial. So she goes to the tomb. What does she find? She finds that the boulder is rolled away where Jesus had been laid. And presumably she must have gone into the tomb or certainly put her head around it because she saw that it was empty because she returns to Peter and John reporting that the body of Jesus had been removed. It was empty. Then what do we see? We see Peter and John, these two disciples, they had a race. They raced to the tomb. They ran to see who could get there first. And they saw that, yes, the woman Mary was correct. So they returned home again. And in these first verses of these first ten verses, we see a little bit more of a detail here. Because we see the detail of the buried cloths that Jesus had been wrapped in were left within the tomb. Jesus presumably had unwrapped these burial clothes when he became alive again. And this is in contrast to the other account that we've had with Lazarus. If you remember when Jesus uh, raised Lazarus from the death, Lazarus came out of the tomb and was still wrapped in those burial tomb clothes around his body. But here we see that Jesus had departed with them. So, getting back to our actual passage of John 20 verses 11 to 18. We've got three players within this account tonight. We've got Mary, we've got the angels, and we've got the risen Jesus. Three players. Let's have a look at these in turn. Firstly, Mary. 
Who was this Mary that we are talking about here? Well, we're told it was Mary Magdalene. And within John's Gospel, we read of her firstly at the foot of the cross, chapter 19, verse 25. And in the Gospel of Luke, we read of her as one of the several women who financially supported Jesus' ministry, and out of whom Jesus had exercised seven demons. So she had had quite an experience with Jesus. She had quite an experience with Jesus. She was important, or he was important to her. But before Mary can actually announce anything of the good news of Jesus' resurrection, she needs to experience it herself. And John's Gospel says, it was still dark when Mary reached the tomb. Now this is a way of speaking, if you like. Certainly it demonstrated the time of day, but it can also be seen as like a metaphor for the fact that it was the end period of darkness and we're moving on towards the light of Jesus' resurrection. Remember, Judas, who had betrayed Jesus, had left at night. And his departure and Mary's arrival bookended the whole story of Jesus' arrest, trial and death. And from here on to the end of the Gospel of John, we see light overcoming darkness. And we read in the Gospels of Mark, Mary, Mark, Luke, and, uh, and Matthew that Mary is joined at the cross by the other women too. And we also get some indication that they may well have been with her at the tomb. However, John only focuses on her and her experience. But he does imply that there are other women with her because she tells the disciples that we do not know where they have laid him. Look at verse 2 of chapter 20. So then, what is Mary's response to this situation? Well, the loss of the body is the final indignity, the last straw. Even her mourning for Jesus is violated. It's not hard to imagine the enormous emotional strain which the last few days have placed upon her. Not least the anguish of having looked on her saviour, her master, crucified on that cross. And her tears were more, than under, under, were more than understandable, writes Milne, the commentator, because this would have been a part of the Jewish tradition of mourning, which went on for at least seven days before normal life could carry on again. But she does display great grief, not only concerning the death of Jesus, but also the fact that she thought the body had been moved, a very disrespectful action of anyone within the mourning period. Despite this, John records that Mary doesn't seem to display any surprise or fear concerning the angelic presence within the tomb. It reminds me of other angelic visitations at the time of the birth of Jesus. If you remember, angels came down and proclaimed the birth of the Messiah. And we see it here again, angels being, being involved. 
the heavenly spiritual world invading the human one. So what do we see then within this passage? Well, we see that Mary declares her relationship with Jesus. Look what's written in verse 13. Sorry. Look what they say in verse 13. They have taken my Lord away. They have taken my Lord away. She doesn't say they have taken the body away. No, it's my Lord. She declares to the angels not only that they have taken my Lord away, but she declares to the angels that she doesn't know where Jesus' body is. And then, of course, we have this strange apparition appearing behind her. This man suddenly turns up. And Mary doesn't recognize the man behind her. She thinks it it was the gardener who was responsible for the tomb. Now, of course, there may well have been several good reasons why she thought he was the gardener. First of all, She wasn't, of course, expecting to see the living Jesus at that point. She'd already convinced herself that someone had come and taken the body away and reburied it. So she wasn't expecting to see the living Jesus. Secondly, she may well have thought it's the gardener because that was the most likely person to be there in that position because he was responsible for the tomb. Thirdly, she may well have mistook the person because it was early in the morning and the features of the person's face may not have been fully visible if, for instance, the sun was behind him. She'd also, of course, been crying and she may well have been blinded by her tears. And lastly, of course, what we don't know is the actual body of Jesus may well have been altered in its appearance. We know that some of the physical characteristics weren't the same. And that would tie in, of course, with other references to resurrection appearances of Jesus where people did not recognize him immediately. So how then does Mary respond to this man? Well, she responds with the same answer that she gave the angels. Tell me where his body is and I will get him. Evidence again that for Mary, she still hadn't understood and accepted the fact that Jesus had risen from the dead. This changes though rapidly, doesn't it? When the man states her name, he says, Mary. Now remember, for Mary... Jesus is her Lord. And so perhaps she recognized the voice of Jesus when he calls her by name. And so she cries out in joy, Master, Teacher. And in response to this recognition and instruction, what do we see? We see that Mary acts in obedience. She acts in obedience to Jesus' commands. She does what Jesus tells her to do, to go and tell the disciples the news that Jesus is risen and she has seen him and what he had said to her. And of course, this is the first account, the first proclamation concerning the risen Lord. 
And so for us here tonight, who call Jesus our Lord, we can ask ourselves the question, are we, like Mary, obedient to what he instructs us to do? So there we have the first person, Mary, in this account. Well, what about the angels? Well, we're not told very much about the angels, are we? They appear as a couple, as is often the case in biblical accounts, and they perform the role of messengers, taking messengers. We read, of course, that they interact through asking why Mary is crying. But the question perhaps comes to mind is, why did God send these messengers? Because if Jesus was going to appear to her, why did they need to be there? Well, perhaps because this indicates that this resurrection of Jesus is a heavenly action. It goes beyond the norm of human experience. And then thirdly, of course, we come to the risen Jesus himself. We come to the risen Jesus. I don't know what's going wrong with this tonight. The risen Jesus. Good. Jesus provokes Mary, doesn't he? Look what he does. He, he provokes her to respond to the situation that she is in. Because he asks her the same questions. Why are you crying? But he expands upon that by saying, who are you looking for? Jesus, in doing this, displays his personal touch. He displays his humanity. Getting annoyed now. Um, he displays his humanity. It's a personal request. He is interested in her individually. And he shows this by responding to her answer in a personal way. Look what he says to her. He responds by name. He states her name. And in doing this, he shows that he knows not only who she is, and therefore will know what her needs are. He goes on to expand on this by giving her personal instructions on how she is to act and what she is to do. She is to go and tell the disciples what she has experienced and heard of a meeting with him, that of being able to speak with him, all evidence of his resurrection. And in doing this, Jesus is also confirming that he knows the needs of the disciples as well, that they need to know and experience the evidence of his resurrection for themselves. The greatest evidence, of course, of any event comes from personal experience. You will be out to go home and report the fact that you have been here tonight. You have heard what has been said. You have sung the songs. You have prayed the prayers. And this, of course, is what Jesus wants his disciples to have as well. He wants them to have the experience of knowing that Jesus has risen again. And in verse 17, we read that Jesus explains to Mary his current situation. She mustn't hold or touch on to him or hang on to him because he hasn't ascended to the Father. She mustn't cling to him, benefiting from his presence. But now she must go and share this knowledge and tell others of the great news that Jesus is risen. And isn't this a fact that we in the church, we often want to sit at the feet of Jesus 
rather than going out and sharing the good news with others who haven't met him. And so again, there's a lesson for us and for myself there. But we also read here in this short passage, in verse 17, of Jesus declares his relationship to God. He states, my God and my Father, in verse 17. He's reinforcing his claim to be the Son of God, which is what the Jewish religious leaders had crucified him for. We see that, of course, in chapter 19, verse 7. But what is perhaps even more incredible is the fact that Jesus states that the disciples are his brothers and that his God and Father is now theirs. Jesus is saying here that Mary and the disciples, through his death, resurrection, and later ascension, can have the same relationship with God that Jesus has. Isn't that an incredible statement? Isn't that an incredible promise? The promise that we, if believers in Jesus, as the risen Son of God, can also be the brothers of Jesus and have a Father who is God. Isn't that a joyful thought and encouragement to all of us who believe tonight? And so this account that we have in front of us tonight can give us confidence to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. But why can we have confidence? What is there about this that gives us the confidence that we can have in this resurrection? Well, firstly, I think, the first confidence that we can have is the historical evidence we have. Now, many people would want to tell us that this is a myth made up by people wanting to start a new religion. But no, we see here that this is a historical event. Jesus tells us that it... uh, John tells us that it happened in space and time. It was an event that happened. What was the space? Well, the space was the tomb of Joseph of Arismathea. The time was the first day of the week following the Passover in the year AD 33. And of course, there are other historical pointers within this account as well. For instance, who was the first witness? Well, the first witness was a woman, Mary. Now, this is incredible for the Jewish people of the time because the Jewish people of the time would not accept women's evidence in a court of law. So if anyone is going to use women's evidence, they must believe that it's true. Isn't that fantastic? But also, not only that, we've got these other little details within this account. What about the race between Peter and John to the tomb? Because this race does nothing for the actual storyline at all but it adds little detail of authenticity. And then, of course, we've got the actual evidence of the empty tomb and the missing body. Now, what about that? Well, of course, the new Christians after this event claimed that Jesus had risen from the dead. Now, the religious authorities could have easily overthrown that claim if they had taken the body away because they could have brought it back again but they obviously didn't or couldn't. 
Equally speaking, uh, another supposition that's often put forward is that the disciples had robbed the tomb themselves. But we have to ask ourselves the question, would the disciples have gone to their death and been persecuted if they'd have done that? No, it is not likely to have happened. And of course, we've also got the evidence of the historical church who for 2,000 years have witnessed this event of the historical truth of the resurrection. So we can believe and rejoice in this Easter Sunday because of the historical evidence. But secondly, we can believe because of the personal nature, its implications. Look at Mary and the disciples. Remember what the disciples' lives were like before the resurrection. They were cowering behind closed doors. They were frightened of the authorities. Mary was grieving and may have felt betrayed, but Christ was there for her and banished the sadness and banished the betrayal and the fear that she felt. Christ was there for the disciples, including later, of course, that we'll read of, Doubting Thomas. And we too can meet with Christ, not in Mary's way, but through the Holy Spirit, through faith in the risen Lord. And Jesus can transform our lives as well. That's the joy of Easter. So it's personal. But thirdly, we can rejoice in it because it is universal. It's universal. Mary was to tell the disciples, and this anticipated the missionary commission of the risen Jesus for every generation. We read in Matthew 28, verse 19, that Jesus tells his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations. And this comes about because of the evidence I have seen the risen Lord. The resurrection is the reason for life and death of Jesus. God in person who entered our world, that salvation might be won for all people. And Easter, Easter Sunday, is when we can celebrate this, that we have good news for our generation and the people that live in our world today. We have got lots of reasons for rejoicing and no reasons for despair. And so, this Easter Sunday, we have been reminded that the resurrection of Jesus is the key to the Christian faith. He gives us confidence in what Jesus taught because he stated that he would rise again. And he did so. And so we can have faith in all else that Jesus stated and taught us. And he demonstrates to us that Jesus wasn't an imposter, but rather the true God. And that death, isn't the end, but that Jesus defeated death. And there's a future, future given by Jesus by his death upon the cross, a way for us for resurrection to happen. And of course, all of this happened through the power that brought Jesus back to life. And we too can have that same power. That's the power that Jesus gave his apostles and gives us today the Holy Spirit, which Jesus promises to give to those who believe. Now, of course, it begs the question, isn't it? Do we believe? Do we have faith in this? 
Well, if you don't, and if you want to explore it further, or you want to ask more questions, then please do talk to Richard, our rector, or myself at the end of the service. And of course, we've got those books to give away as well. But then, if it is your faith, well, then you'd perhaps like to join in me in saying together this verse of this old hymn, because it declares our faith, doesn't it? Up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph of his foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain, and he lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose, he arose, hallelujah, Christ arose. Amen.